Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. The Global Story, with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. Hi there, welcome to World Business Report here on the BBC World Service. My name's Ed Butler and on today's edition we're going to be looking at the world's biggest mining deal announced in West Africa, but will it really help local workers there? Also, we'll be looking at why it may be time to cap everyone's personal wealth, at least in the view of one outspoken economist. And coming up, a message to Manchester United fans. In his first broadcast interview since taking over, the club's new co-owner, Sir Jim Radcliffe, says rival clubs beware. I'm in exactly the same page as Alex Ferguson. I'd want to knock them all off it, but they are the enemies, you know. They're clearly our biggest rivals and competitors. More on that exclusive interview on the BBC coming up later in our show. The US government has just announced a series of actions to strengthen the cybersecurity of America's ports, the move targeting alleged vulnerabilities specifically to Chinese cyber attack, which will make uh, all critical port infrastructure adhere to international standards, focusing on Chinese-made hardware. It follows wider recent warnings about the state of China's readiness to attack America's infrastructure, at least in the view of the FBI. Speaking at Munich at the Munich Cybersecurity Conference in la- last week, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, made his views on China's hostile outlook all too clear. The cyber threat posed by the Chinese government is massive. China's hacking program is larger than that of every other major nation combined. And that size advantage is only magnified because the PRC uses AI, built in large part on stolen innovation and stolen data, to improve its hacking operations, including to steal yet more AI tech and data. The thoughts of the FBI director, Christopher Wray. Well, I've been discussing the move to tighten security at the ports with the cybersecurity researcher, James Lewis, who's from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Well, the U.S. is looking at a potential confrontation with China over Taiwan. And one of the first things the Chinese would probably do, should that occur, is interfere with our ability to support forces overseas, which means damaging the ports in some ways and using Chinese supplied cranes that are connected to the internet creates a perfect opportunity. You're talking there about this ship to shore crane manufacturer, Shanghai, Zhenhua, heavy industries. I mean, the idea being that if companies like that were heavily involved in the ports, they're kind of a, a Trojan horse through which the Chinese would be able to influence and disrupt Yeah, and I believe the machinery is in 22 of the major U.S. ports. You know, for 40 years, we thought we and the Chinese would be friends. And so we built deeply interconnected supply chains where buying from a Chinese company didn't seem like a bad idea. One of the things we underestimated is the Chinese government was very strategic in supporting different industries, telecom, railroads, logistics, 
And now in this era of confrontation, that creates risk. Yeah. And now we're talking ports, because as you say, I mean, 5G technology was another area, wasn't it, where we felt like Chinese control basically over the hardware was just too risky to countenance. You know, and in this case, you can't point to any incident where there's been interference with the operation of a port, but in 5G, you could. And so people are saying, do I want to take that risk? And the Biden administration is saying no. China has said it's paranoia-driven concern. Um, <laughs> you laugh. Well, there's a, there's a degree of red scare in this. People um, say that whenever you watch TikTok, when you hang up, you'll want to sing the Chinese national anthem. There's, there's a little bit of overreaction, but that's typically American. And it's because we're in so deep in this. We found Huawei, for example, was built throughout our telecom networks. We found that American police departments and the military even depended on Chinese drones that were, again, an effort by the Chinese government to dominate a strategically important market. So, yes, there is a little bit of overreaction, but it's not unjustified. There was this story around, I seem to recall, just before the launch of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, whereby everyone was predicting that Ukraine would kind of be shut down within 48 hours by Russian cyber attacks. It never materialized. Russia's hostile cyber potential just did not seem to exist in anything like the scale that everybody, all the experts, or many of them, seemed to be forecasting at that time. No, and that's a fair point that we don't want to overstate the risk. The counter to that is Colonial Pipelines, which was a major cyber incident that had true political effect, where it was the Russians in this case, not the Chinese. And so we learned the hard way that the time to create the oversight authorities to put an agency in charge is before the incident, not after. So what are they going to do? I mean, $20 billion, I think, is being pledged by the U.S. to strengthen port infrastructure, as it says. What does that look like? A lot of it is just giving Coast Guard the ability to look at cyber incidents. So if a ship or a port or a crane operator has some sort of cyber incident, they'll have to tell the Coast Guard. And that's that's a very useful first step. There's some effort to restore manufacturing to the U.S. with with a Japanese company putting money in. There's the ability to intervene uh, by Coast Guard when they see something going on. So monitoring intervention and perhaps shifting manufacturing will reduce the risk to ports. More generally, I guess the trend is going to remain to exclude more and more Chinese companies from any kind of presence, whether it's in ports or other forms of infrastructure. It's a shame in a way because the partnership that the world had with China, China as the world's factory, actually was pretty good. And if the Chinese had chosen a different path, we would all still be going down it. But given the ability of the Chinese to exploit information technology for espionage purposes and perhaps for disruption, people are no longer willing to take the risk. The cybersecurity researcher James Lewis. In the last hour and a half, NVIDIA, the uh, tech giant, has reported its fourth quarter earnings, and it's good news for the company. More than good news, eye-popping is what one commentator has called its financial return. Susan Schmidt uh, is head of public equity at the 
uh, uh, State of Wisconsin Investment Board. She's with me. Hi, Susan. What's NVIDIA been telling us in the, these results? Well, NVIDIA is coming out strong and I think surprising investors to the upside. There was some trepidation given that expectations had become so high for what this company might be doing. Remember that it's caught up and was really the origination of this big interest in AI, artificial intelligence. NVIDIA reported results. Sales exceeded analyst expectations coming in at 22 billion. 20 billion was the expectation. So that's a big beat because analysts were already stretching views to get to that lofty number. And then earnings, a blowout, $5.16 per share in earnings. Expectations were for $4.60. So significant beats. That's a lot of dominance. And NVIDIA is just talking about how it's only just beginning beginning. They've got a lot of strength in this space. And I think investors are really going to run with this. Yeah, there was a big slide on uh, its share valuations yesterday, I guess, based on on over-optimism. At least that was the view of the market. (laughs) One can perhaps forecast a bounce back tomorrow. Absolutely. Investors understood that expectations were very high. And we've seen that caution take hold in the market where people were concerned that maybe things had run too much and people were getting ahead of themselves with their expectations of what AI could deliver. Obviously not the case. Briefly, Germany's finance minister for economic affairs has said the country's economy is in troubled waters. Uh, It's unusual to hear a a minister for economic affairs saying this, and it's it's bad, bad news for Europe's biggest economy. Definitely surprising to hear someone come out and say that so bluntly. It does mean that there's concern still over the underlying economies within Europe. Germany, obviously a big industrial production center and coming out showing that inflation is taking its toll. We are seeing some headwinds. Ultimately, will Germany be able to master this? They do have that big production facility underlying. They should be fine, but this does show what a rocky road and how much trouble inflation can bring and the high interest rates we've needed to deploy to calm it. Susan Schmidt in the US, thank you so much for your time. Now, Rio Tinto's board has approved what appears to be the world's biggest mining project. In Guinea, in West Africa, the Simandu project aims to produce iron ore from a $20 billion development as soon as next year, subject to final approval from its other partners in China. The company says that it's going to invest $6.2 billion in the mine, rail and port project. Rio Tinto reckons that the prospect offers a rare and exciting opportunity, in its words, to diversify and grow its portfolio. Well, I've been speaking about this to Peter Munyi. He's a mining engineer and a consultant based in Nairobi in Kenya. What did he think was the scale of what had been proposed? This is a big deal for the country of Guinea. It's a big deal also for the continent of Africa. If you think about it, the kind of infrastructure projects that are going to come in during the project, we are talking about a rail line that is more than 500 kilometers. You're talking about a new port facility, both totaling to almost $6.2 billion. That's a lot of money being injected into the economy of a country. And we are going to see a lot of people getting employment. Which is important. China and other partners have stepped in, haven't they? Because Rio Tinto says it alone doesn't have the resources to to finance so big an investment. That is synonymous with mini mining projects. Developing a capacity of almost 60 million tons a year, it's not an easy thing. You need big financiers to come in, and that's where collaborations comes in in mining projects. It's very hard for one company to go it alone. 
But what's sweet about this deal is the government of Guinea owns a direct shareholding of 15%, which means they are going to really benefit directly from the project. You say that, but I mean, there will be those saying, look, this is not even a democratic government. It's a military leadership. Uh, it's been there since 2021. Mm -hmm. it, it threw out the democratically elected president in a coup. Uh, elections are scheduled mm. not until 2025. Is it even legitimate for Rio Tinto to sign a deal with a government that is not internationally recognized? Our mining projects and politics always go hand in hand. To me, uh, the beauty of it is seeing such a country, even in those difficult circumstances that they are going through politically, they are still able to uh, find value and they are trying to utilize the local resources at least to contain the local challenges that are there. So Rio Tinto is continuing with the project. It has been approved by relevant authorities. And if they fulfill the current law of the country, then I believe the benefits of such a project will surely outlive you know, the challenges that the country has politically. There is a history, though, let's be honest, of corruption around mining deals, particularly in Guinea and in the region. You're confident mm -hmm. that this time there has been sufficient transparency? I believe so. And this project started long, a long time ago for you to to come out and, and give such confident results. You've worked there for quite some time. You're sure of what you're doing. We are hoping that this makes things better, even for the people and for the country. The injection to the economy of Guinea, it's going to transform lives. If we are able to improve lives of that young girl, that young boy who is in the village, and is looking for opportunities, we are going to see that. And then to me, it beats the odds. A hopeful note there from the Kenyan mining expert, Peter Munyi. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student athletes upside down. I don't think we realized what the true flavor of Wyoming was back in 1969. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. There was a rebel Confederate flag being flown. It was different. It was definitely different. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're with World Business Report from the BBC World Service. He's a billionaire who says he's fulfilling a boyhood dream, but he admits it was a difficult he has a difficult task ahead of him. So Jim Radcliffe is the new co-owner of Manchester United. He saw his one and a quarter billion pound deal for a 27.7% stake in this club completed yesterday. But what will he be able to restore to the club? Will, it, will he return it to its former glories? He's been speaking to the BBC sports editor, Dan Rowan. The only reason I got involved in Manchester United is because I want to see Manchester United restored to where it should be in football. It's the biggest club in the world. In my, I mean, maybe I'm slightly biased, but I think it's the biggest club. It's the most well-known club in the world. It has the greatest history in the world. And it should be playing the greatest football in the world which it has been from time to time. So it should always be challenging for the Premiership and it should always be challenging for the Champions League but each it's, year. It's been and, a decade it, since it last won the Premier League. So yeah, how, how would you describe the scale of the challenge facing you then? 
Well, it's clearly had a difficult 11 years um, since um, Sir Alex and David Gill retired. Mm. Uh, so it's not, this won't be a light switch. It's not, it's not switching a light switch. It's not just about a new coach or, you know, it's not a simple fix or a short-term fix. We have to, you know, we have to walk to the, the right solution, not run to the wrong solutions. It's, we, we've got a short-term issue, which is that we really, really want to get into the Champions League next year because it's quite important for FFP. But the real challenge is, you know, it's a, you know, it's, it's a two- to three-season challenge to get, you know, that organisation and environment right. How difficult a task do you face? It's the biggest one. It's, I think it's an enormous challenge. It's not... It, it, you know, I mean, everybody's trying to do the same thing. You know, everybody in the Premier League and around Europe, they all want to win the Champions League, you know, and it clearly isn't very... It's not, it's not easy. Uh, and there are so many components and elements. And United is such a huge club. Mm. Um, and, it's, you know, there's a great weight of expectation on, on the shoulders of Manchester United. So, no, it's, the, it's absolutely the biggest challenge. There's competition everywhere, it seems. How would you I'm, put I'm it? I'm in exactly the same page as Alex Ferguson. I'd want to knock them all off their post. <laughs> I mean, Alex was a very driven, very competitive individual. And, um, you know, he just wanted to win. And that's the only reason we're there at United, you know. I mean, we're friends in the sense that we're all in the Northwest, but they are the enemies, you know. You know they're, they're clearly our biggest rivals and competitors in the UK. And then obviously you've got two or three clubs in yeah. Europe. Um, but no, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's what we're there for, knocking them off their perch. A nod there to rivals Liverpool and Man City. Well, knock them off their perch, he says, but can he have that sort of an impact? Dr. Stefan Szymanski is Professor of Sport Management at the University of Michigan, and he has his doubts. Jim Radcliffe does not have any final say on what happens at Manchester United. The final say rests with those who own the most of the shares, and that's still the Glazer family. So he can offer his opinions, but he can't decide anything. But... Everyone's making a big deal out of it. I mean, do we have a sense that this is a new beginning for the club? It might be that there is a plan to hand over further ownership to Radcliffe. Maybe there's a secret deal between him and the Glazers to do that. And so that might be what's going to happen. And certainly he claims that he can bring expertise and good advice to the club, which um, if that's true, then that might help the club in the future but again he can't do anything for the moment that the glazers don't want him to do fans will say expertise and fresh blood is sorely needed there won't they clearly the the fans have, have not wanted this ownership group the, the current ownership group the glazers for a very long time now so for sure they want to see changes the question is whether the senior management team in responsible for the club can really have any long-term effect bear in mind manchester united's glory years were under sir alex ferguson who was just unquestionably the outstanding manager of his generation and finding somebody like that again is it's a needle in a haystack people like that come up only once in a blue moon and so Manchester United would be lucky to find somebody like him again who could really turn the club around at the playing level all right let's we can speculate of course about what the future holds but talk to me about the past what we know about kind of management changes of this kind and where they can sometimes turn around the fortunes of a club, bringing in fresh scouts, fresh backroom teams, maybe technical directors, a new kind of structural outlook. What are the prospects for something like that happening at Manchester United? 
Once upon a time, it was the board of directors of the football club that selected the players who would play on the weekend and who basically ran the business on a day-to-day basis. But that era ended a long time ago. Really, from the 1960s onwards, the decision-making at the playing level was all passed on to the manager. And so someone like Ratcliffe, who sits on the board of directors, he can have an influence on things like commercial decisions and what kind of sponsorship deals the club is going to do. But it's really very unusual in this day and age for someone like him to have any real influence on the way the team is playing. And so I wouldn't anticipate it would actually make that much of a difference. Football expert Dr. Stefan Szymanski from the University of Michigan there. How rich should we be allowed to become? For years, economists and social thinkers have pondered the problems of global poverty and just how to improve the lot of those least fortunate. But now a Belgian philosopher has come up with a radical proposal. She argues that personal wealth needs to be capped needs to be capped. No one, she says, should be allowed to have more than $10 million and that their excess wealth be used to alleviate poverty and to help other global challenges. How would that work? I've been speaking to Ingrid Robbins. She's at the University of Utrecht about her new book, which she's called Limitarianism. There are a range of reasons why I argue for limitarianism and hence against wealth concentration. I think the important ones have to do with the harm it could do for society. First, it can undermine democracy. The clearest case where we see this is the US, where political scientists say it's no longer a democracy, but it's in an oligarchy, which means those who have the billions rule with campaign donations, with large expenses on lobbying. So that's the first important reason. The second reason is that wealth concentration doesn't go together with climate justice and other forms of sustainability. So the super rich have carbon footprints that are many, many times those of ordinary people. I think if you acknowledge that the climate crisis is really an existential emergency for the human species, we should use that money that they do not need for their quality of life to save the planet for the human species against this problem. So that's Ingrid Robin's general pitch. Perhaps unsurprisingly, her ideas that wealth should be capped haven't met with universal enthusiasm. As a humanitarian, I have to say, I've never heard such a load of nonsense and claptrap in my life. That's John Cordwell. He's a self-made billionaire who runs a large UK mobile phone retailer. He, as it happens, has already pledged not to hold on to most of his own money, giving 70% of it away to charitable causes. It's an ideology that Ingrid has got that is absolutely, utterly impossible to put in. The only way of achieving that would be with a worldwide dictator that sets all the standards. And we all know what happens with dictators. They and the cronies become the world's richest and the poor become poorer. Now, if you look at capping somebody to 10 million pounds, when I built my business, it probably took me 15 years to make 10 million pounds. I worked like fury to achieve that. If 10 million was the cap, at that time, I was employed about 50 people. 
where would have been the motivation to carry on, drive forward and to employ 12,000 people and to grow a huge amount of wealth for those individuals, for the success and the wealth that are created? So what does Ingrid Robbins say to the idea that capping an individual's wealth at any level would undermine the incentives to be productive on which capitalism is based? You're right. Productivity, I think, is the main objection toward this this view of capping personal wealth. Of course, we don't cap company wealth at that level, which means if you were to spread the wealth of a company among more people, you could still let companies grow. But the objection that limitarianism would actually have a negative effect on innovation is based on two assumptions that I think are really contestable that people are mainly motivated by earning endlessly more money in order to contribute, whereas we see that many people in the world, anybody working in the public sector, but also, say, the medical staff on the NHS, all the scholars in the world, they're not driven by money. So you believe that people will carry on innovating even if they've hit that wealth cap? Uh, Absolutely. And there's nothing in it for them financially? Well, we may lose some people, but others will be enabled to contribute more. That you will enable many who are now stunned because they don't have proper education, because they don't have a good start in life, to actually contribute much more. It will also really unlock a lot of creativity and potential that is now locked because we don't have equal opportunities. There will be some who see these proposals as a kind of Orwellian attempt to to create a, a massive kind of big brother state that will look down on us all and limit our freedoms. Yes, I see some people making those comments. I think, first of all, people who make those comments tend to not have read my book. <laughs> they, they go by the headlines. There was a multimillionaire who wrote to me and said, so I would really encourage people to not just go by headlines, but delve into the arguments. I think it is important to have these sketches of how, if you were able to think about a fully just world, how would wealth inequality look like? That is actually the question I'm asking. Professor Ingrid Robbins and her book again is called Limitarianism. You can hear more from my interview with her in Friday's edition of Business Daily here on BBC World Service. Now, uh, just time to uh, acknowledge the latest chatter. There's always chatter about US interest rates. Susan Schmidt, Head of Public Equity at the uh, State of Wisconsin Investment Board, is still with us. Hi, Susan, again. Uh, What are we hearing? Minutes from the Federal Reserve January meeting. This is enough to get us all talking. It definitely is. It makes investors think, that's for sure. So the Fed minutes showed that internally, the Fed minutes are discussing what happens with inflation and the expectations around inflation, the Fed governors are none too eager to drop interest rates too soon. That's very different than what investors were expecting as we came into the air. Investors were very anxious and expecting that things were going so well as we tamed inflation. Maybe we'd even get a rate cut in March. These minutes are showing that the Fed governors are definitely thinking differently than that. They're very worried. They don't want to cut too soon. And so they're taking more of a wait and see attitude. That'll change investors' feel about the market as we move forward in the coming weeks. Yeah, uh, March being the next time they meet, right? The next time there could be a cut briefly. I mean, are we saying now May? What are you thinking? 
investors are going to take this and really push it out, I think, into the summer months as the majority will expect to cut mm. several months out, not May or as soon as that. We've seen good data from jobs, okay. the consumer price index. That all means inflation still there as a threat. All right. Susan, thank you very much indeed. Thanks. And this has been World Business Report.